Hey, great live panel coming up in Los Angeles with all of the writers of Conan. They're really funny. Get tickets, support A26LA, come learn how the Conan Writer's Room works. Check it out at writerspanel.tumblr.com or follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker. I'll post that link all the time. Hope to see you there. Now entering Nerdist.com. Today's episode is recorded at ATX Television Festival. This year's fest is June 9th through 12th, and you should be there. They've already announced really cool stuff like an Everybody Loves Raymond reunion, Terriers, The Shield, uh, with a bunch of writers from that show. They've got Norman Lear. They've got Hart Hansen. Come on out. Go to atxfestival.com. Get your badge June 9th through 12th and come say hello. Unless you've been living under a rock, you're very familiar with the show we're going to talk about today. But just in case you're not, here are a few bullet points. Empire is the highest rated broadcast drama since 2008. It is the highest rated freshman series since 2005. It is the only broadcast prime program to build in live viewers every single week in 23 years. And it is currently the number one broadcast series on television. Additionally, it spawned a number one album, earned star Taraji P. Henson a Critics' Choice Award for Best Actress in a Drama, is a frontrunner at the Emmys, and literally the show is just getting started. <laughs> Ten days after its debut, Empire was renewed for a second season that will premiere this fall on Fox, and to talk all about the conception, execution, production, and popularity, please welcome to the stage co-executive producer and writer Wendy Calhoun. And last, but by no means least, writer, executive producer, and co-creator of Empire, Danny Strong. It should also be noted that today is Danny's birthday. All right, have a seat, guys. In honor of my birthday, I will be performing Drip Drop. Yes! For you all. Naomi. <laughs> That's right. I love it. Um, so let's, I mean, let's honestly start at the beginning, Danny. I mean, okay. you and Lee Daniels co-created this show together. Uh, you were coming off a string of several successful projects, which won you Emmys and widespread acclaim. I'm curious. Keep going. This is oh, good. I like so, this. So first there was Recount, which won AFI's no, no, TV right. program. Right. Of the, okay. I mean, listen, I'll go. We can do this. Uh, how did Empire materialize for you? So uh, it's so random how it came about. I was driving in my car in Los Angeles, and I don't even live in Los Angeles, so already this story is getting crazy. <laughs> and uh, there was a news story on the radio about Puffy, and some deal that he closed, and I don't even remember what the news story was. But hearing the news story, I thought, hip hop is so cool. I gotta do something in hip hop. That was literally my mindset. That was it. It was like, hip-hop is cool. I got to do something in hip-hop. And then I thought, well, what, how would, what would I do? And then, and then, you know, how I work is that I, I constantly work from 
mythological or Shakespearean archetypes. So usually the first thing I think about is, well, what kind of story would it be? So on Game Change, how I figured out how to do that project was, oh, it's a Pygmalion story. And Sarah Palin is, uh, you know, her, Doolittle, right? And then Steve Schmidt's Henry Higgins. So um, I... Did someone to go, ooh, oh, oh. <laughs> Just didn't like that at all. So I, uh, so it was, it was hip-hop is cool. I should do something in hip-hop. Huh, what would I do? Maybe like King Lear or The Lion in Winter. I mean, literally, this is like my thought process. Literally, boom, this, this, this. And then I was like, oh, yeah, it'd be like King Lear or The Lion in Winter. So there'd be three kids, and, and they'd all be performers, and he would be like Puffy or Jay-Z, but maybe older, so the kids could be older. And the whole concept flooded into my head in about 30 seconds. And we were in post-production on the butler at the time. And I thought, well, uh, I got to go back to New York in a week, which is where I live. And I'll, and I'll pitch it to Lee Daniels. And so that's what I did. And I pitched it to Lee. And I had, I had it mostly worked out. You know, how, who the three sons were, that the mother was getting out of prison for the drug money that started the empire, and that the middle son was gay, and the father hated the middle son, and that was, you know, and I knew Lee Daniels had a relationship like that with his father, so I kind of hit it really hard when I was pitching Lee. <laughs> I'm like, Lee, his dad hates him because he's gay. And Lee was like, that's so brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then the next day, and I pitched it to him as a movie, and I thought that Lee and I could do this like hip hop musical movie, and I just thought it was just a cool idea. And Lee called me the next day, and he said, "I can't stop thinking about your idea, but I have a question for you." And I said, "What?" And he said, "Do you want to be rich?" <laughs> And I said, in fact, I do. That's crazy. Because <laughs> that like, completely fits into my lifestyle choices. <laughs> and and he, said, he said, we should do it as a TV show. And I instantly knew he was right because it's about a family. And TV shows are about families, either literally or metaphorically. And, um, and I just said, you're absolutely right. It should be a TV show. And then we instantly started talking about dynasty in Dallas and that we could do a black dynasty. And what's, I, I, so the only kind of thing that's pretty interesting about this is literally empire was created from every single first idea that happened spontaneously. So it was, you know, he said, we should do it as a TV show. Yeah, it would be like Dynasty. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, like a black dynasty, you know? And uh, it just was one of those things. It was just sort of, that's, that's, and that was the birth of Empire. I love it. Uh, Wendy. Interesting, right? Yeah. <laughs> Wendy, you're coming from several shows that are very popular here in Austin. Uh, Justified is one of them. Life, Nashville. I mean, these are shows that this audience loves. Uh, when you heard this idea for Black Dynasty, uh, what was it that made you want to come aboard? Did you also get a call from Lee Daniels saying, do you want to be rich? <laughs> No, I went chasing after Lee Daniels, is what happened. I actually I went right to Fox. I read the script for Empire. Friends slipped it to me in January uh, before the pilot was shot. And I was in Nashville producing Nashville. And I had, for two seasons, I would come into the Nashville room and I would pitch the black version of Nashville. <laughs> and I would, I would have the room in stitches and it was so fun. And I, I read the script and I thought, oh my God, somebody wrote the black version of Nashville. <laughs> I could actually use all these pitches that I haven't been able to use for the past two years. <laughs> so immediately, I, I, I immediately called my agent and I said, um, yeah, um, I'm going to go do this show Empire. And he's like, it hasn't even been shot yet. What's wrong with you? <laughs> you have a job. Stop that. Uh, but I, I just loved it. I loved it immediately. I love badass women. Uh, and so when I read the character of Cookie, I was like, I got to write that. I got I to gotta do that. Uh, you know, Terrence Howard is somebody's career I've watched from, feels like, the beginning. I remember when he was in the Jacksons. Remember that? So, 
don't. I, I just. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then I, I love hip hop. I've loved it forever. There's a man in this room named Graham Yost who knows this is true. Because uh, he is here, I think. He's going to heckle us, he said. But, uh, you know, I remember one of the first ever scripts that I wrote for a show that was my first ever staff position. It was on a show called Reigns. It starred Jeff Goldblum. And I wrote it set in the hip-hop world because that, to me, was something that I've always been fascinated by. So it was a no-brainer. I, I, once I read the script, I just, I, I don't know. I, I really wanted it to happen, and I really wanted to be a part of it. There was obviously passion fueling this project from the jump, listening to the two of you talk. And I think every television show, the creatives come to it with the best of intentions. And very rarely do those intentions connect with the audience in the way Empire has. Was there ever a sense in the writer's room before the premiere when you're working on it the idea of this is something, we have something here, and we think as long as it gets a platform, it will connect. Yeah, you know, I certainly felt like there was a very large audience out there that was completely underserved. And I felt like if we stayed true to the, to the seeds that were planted in the pilot, but also really tried to bring some characters to television that are just not seen, that I knew there are millions of people out there who would be interested in seeing. And people who don't normally watch television would be interested in seeing because they don't find it on television normally, that somebody would show up. So, yes. I, I hoped. I didn't know. I just, I, I, yeah, I just, there's always that period where... I find these these projects they're so it's such a journey and it's a very difficult journey from conception to writing it to getting it made to production to post production then to promotion and it's crazy and it's never not stressful that entire journey and then right before it premieres or right before the movie comes out you have this moment at least for me I have this moment where it's a couple because you're you're hustling so hard to promote it, and you're doing so much press and 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 you really want it to succeed, but you have this moment where you you just think, wow, I oh that's right, it's 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 going to come out. <laughs> what's going to happen? <laughs> I have no idea what's going to happen, and uh, and I just I hoped we would do well. We had. Um, Fox was gave us one of the most amazing ad campaigns I'd ever seen. Um, I just had never seen an ad campaign like that. They loved it, and they loved it at the highest levels of News Corp. So it was this sort of News Corp mandate that everywhere across all platforms. So I knew we were teed up to succeed. And it was one of those things where had it had been, I just, I just didn't know. I thought we were going to do pretty good. I didn't know we would do as well as we did. But I, was, I just thought, I think this is going to do well. The show, as I listed in the intro, has done phenomenally well. At what point, I mean, there are things on the show that would probably give an, another network pause. You know, Lucius putting his son in the trash, the conversations about sexuality. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting stuff from a dramatic thematic point to come from. But I would also imagine that could give a studio or a network pause. Once the show was getting you know, 20 million viewers a week. Do the network notes stop at some point? And they're like, well, you clearly, you know what you're doing. <laughs> uh, definitively not. Never. Really? Never. But, but we were also, had already written and shot 10 episodes mm -hmm. before we started airing. So we just had the two-part finale left okay. when we had started airing. And, um, and on the, f the final hour of the finale, the network hated the script. And Eileen Chaikin, our amazing showrunner, and I, we wrote that script. And we, th we didn't throw it out completely, but we did. And then Taraji had a big problem with one element. And we did this massive rewrite in two days. Wow. And it was pretty crazy because I just really... Like, people really had loved the show at that point. And we'd been airing, and there had been several episodes. And I just really wanted to stick the landing. Mm -hmm. I just didn't want to disappoint people on the season finale. 
And I just remember being very just like, oh, I just don't want to let people down. And then when, when the network, you know, had so many problems with it, and I'm also, I don't have the attitude of, you know, F you, you're wrong and I'm right. I'm, I'm normally, oh, well, maybe there is a problem. Oh, well, what? It, it's just, it's, that's sort of just how different writers, I think, respond differently, and that's how I respond. So, so then we rewrote it in two days, and I remember writing it on a train from Washington, D.C. to New York in the middle of a blizzard, thinking, like, I wonder if this is how Dostoevsky did it. <laughs> you know, it was, like, so romantic with snow falling. Did he write his hip-hop soap opera like this? Um, so, so, yeah, the notes never end. Well, but that's an interesting point that the finale was the only episode you had written once the show had started to air. Yeah. So I'm curious, from a writing standpoint, how do you shut out the noise of what people want and their expectations versus your expectations and what you need to accomplish as a writer? You mean now? Yeah, well, yeah, like on the finale and moving forward. Well, it, it's... The finale we had already worked out, and the finale was the completion of that story of that season, so it didn't matter. We were just finishing that story. I think that we... People say, how are you going to make the show uh, bigger and better in season two? And I say, well, we're not. We're just going to continue the story. Because I think if we tried to make it bigger and better, we would probably make it worse and lamer. <laughs> so it's the idea is just to continue the story and be truthful to the story. And I think we're cognizant of things that fans responded to, but we're not... This isn't choose your own adventure. You know, we're writing the, the story, and there's things that... Uh, that we know people responded to and basically the things people responded to are the things we responded to as well they worked They're, they were cool so we're it's not like we ignore the response to the show but we don't we don't use that to guide us what, what, how do you feel about that Wendy? I, I agree I mean I think listen when I sit down to work on the show and I'm thinking of ideas for the show I really just try to channel what it's like to be part of the Lion family. And that, uh, that is already me putting myself in a creative bubble where I'm not letting the influences of, you know, whatever kinds of demands or even reactions or, or criticism of the show inside that bubble mm -hmm. so that I can continue to try to make something that's organic and real to the people and the characters that were created by, by Danny and Lee there's something in your previous question I just want to mention. I, there was a moment on set um, last fall when I was with Terrence and we were working on an episode and he said, you know, if this show fails, they're not going to let another all-black drama on television for 20 years. <laughs> and, and I thought, well, there's no pressure there. <laughs> uh, the, the, the fear of failure was so great, I think, for many of us working on the show because we felt like the show was so much bigger than us in terms of doing an all-black drama and how important that was for us and also um, honoring this music of hip-hop, which I've often said is the jazz of my generation, um, that I couldn't even let myself go to that place. If I, if I went there, I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't have been able to get it done. I just had to block out any kind of fear because it was so much greater and just sort of served the purpose of the show. Don't go anywhere. Coverage from the ATX Television Festival in Austin, Texas continues next. Only on Entertainment Weekly Radio. Entertainment Weekly Radio has your exclusive backstage pass to the ATX Television Festival. From exclusive interviews with the cast and creators of some of your favorite TV shows. To panels and reunions like this one. Direct from Austin, Texas. Wendy, you wrote episode four of the first season, and that is a really great episode for Cookie. It's when she starts to really establish herself at the company. She takes on Tiana as a client. She's, you know, kind of says, I am here to be a part of this world, whether you like it or not. And the word strong female character, I think, is 
a terrible thing. I think we should just say realistic, complex human being. Uh, and I, I mean, it's true. And I think she's such an amazing example of that. She is a woman who is complex and layered and real. And I would love to talk to you sort of about that character specifically because she has resonated with America and the audience in a way that I have not seen in a very long time. Wendy, for you, what is it about that character that you think people are responding to or that you respond to? Uh, A mother... Um, someone that uh, is, uh, we like to say, ride or die, that you can trust with your deepest secrets, um, and that lives by a code that isn't necessarily the, the, um, the mainstream code of what society means, but it lives by her own code. She also, is, you know, she's that, she's that hero that comes in, and it's, it almost feels like she's the villain, which that's so fun to write. <laughs> You know, it's just so fun to write somebody that's just, I don't know else to say it, balls out like that. <laughs> Probably not the best way to describe a female character. But, I mean, I also am really glad that it came, that this character came into my life when it did. After writing the, you know, Raina James and Juliet Barnes and, uh, you know, Emily... Uh, from Revenge and Madeline Stowe's character in Revenge. Like, these are all really interesting women to me. And so to, to be able to do... For me, it was to be able to do the black version, honestly, was just... That, that was the new flavor that I felt I hadn't gotten a chance to really explore. So uh, that was super fun. But I think for episode four, just, just to put it out there, I, I, I was really trying to humanize... Because I felt like, okay, so often in pilots, you kind of have to put out this, they're almost stereotypes. And, and I don't want to say that about these characters, but you have to, they have to be very broad in what you present. But as you get deeper into series now, you can find different layers, different pockets that you didn't know existed, different corners in the character. So um, I was really hoping to help the series turn that corner so we could find just new shades of these characters we've gotten to know so that we get to know them even better. Mm-hmm. Danny, you obviously were one of the two people who helped create the idea of Cookie, you know, when you were writing the pilot with uh, Lee. For you, what was it you had hoped to accomplish with that character, both at the outset and sort of moving forward? Uh, well, conceptually... Uh, when I was having that meeting with Lee, when I was pitching him the show, I said, you know, their mother, she's like Mama Rose on crack. (laughs) And then Lee screamed, yes, darling, yes! (laughs) So it was this idea that she was the ultimate hustler Mm -hmm. and that she was going to drive... she was just going to, like, basically be the one person that our Jay-Z Puffy character was afraid of. That was sort of the idea, that, that he's, he's the king of the world and the only one that, um, that can get in his way is his ex-wife. Um, that was a very, that was sort of like a key conceptual concept. And I always knew that this part was going to be, had the potential to be a really explosive role. Just conceptually, just that idea of this, this uh, you know, the ex-wife that is basically the antagonist to the protagonist. However, she's actually the protagonist to him being the antagonist, right? So that combination is a little messy in a very way that I thought was cool. Um, And that that was just these real kind of fundamental concepts. And when we wrote the first draft, she really popped off the page because she was driving the action of... of, And she was this, this underdog who wants her children back and she's been in prison for 17 years and she just wants her children back and then you throw on top of it that she's a genius at what she does musically and you've got a pretty cool character you know what else there was an Archie Bunker factor about her for me that she could just be <laughs> she, she would just she'd say what 
what you never would allow yourself to say, you know, but you might be thinking, <laughs> you know, all kinds of all that all, all kinds of prejudices and things. She just she's just out with it. Here's here. Here's what it is. And that was and Lee put that into the character, making her racist mm-hmm. and saying racist things, <laughs> which I hadn't thought of. And um, and I loved it right away. I just like that's hilarious. <laughs> you know, I just thought that's that's really great. Um there was one other thought. Oh, and then you have this other element to Cookie, which is that we ended up casting one of the most talented people I've ever worked with, which is Taraji P. Henson, who is, is amazing. I've been so fortunate to work with some of the most genius actors, you know, Kevin Spacey and Julian Moore and Tom Wilkinson. And I remember a few days into, two days into shooting... I just watching her do a scene, and I just thought she's as good as any of them. She's as good as anyone I've ever worked with. And, and then to have also Terrence Howard, to have those two actors, either one or the other, in almost every scene, and sometimes in scenes together, is a very special gift, I think. I think it's a really amazing, special thing to see those two actors at that level in every scene in a, in a weekly series. It's, it's exciting. It's exciting. I mean, you have Taraji and Terrence who have a very long history together, both as humans and as actors. I would imagine that they're able to bring sort of a spirit to that relationship that wouldn't exist necessarily with two people who met on the pilot. Given that, how much room do you allow for improvisation, how much room do you allow for them to have a say, you know, I feel like we would maybe do this in this case? Um, Tons. I'm such a proponent of improvisation. Now, when it's improvisation, it's not as if you throw the scene out and just improvise a scene, guys, and just see what happens. It's just letting them tweak dialogue or come up with new stuff it's, it's, and I said this right away just because I spent so many years as an actor and I find that um, keeping it loose for me is better. I'm better when I can be a little bit loose with the dialogue. In some shows, they're adamant against it. And um, in some shows, most shows are adamant against it, actually. But some are not, some don't worry about it so much. You know, like on Justified... We, I, you know, just kind of tweak it a little bit, and, it, and no one would say anything. And I find it helps the actors. And in the case of this, we have these genius actors, and they, they, they throw things in all the time, and some of them become famous, like Boo Boo Kitty. That was an improv <laughs> by Taraji yeah. in the pilot. I wrote that line of dialogue, like some quippy thing that she says to Lucius's girlfriend. I rewrote it like a dozen times, and they were fine, you know, these lines. And then uh, she just went on, she just walked up to her, first take, and went, mm-mm-mm, boo-boo kitty, and then walked away. <laughs> and I just was like, that's the most genius thing I've ever seen in my life. And then we ended up writing Boo Boo Kitty into the script over and over again because the writers, the whole staff, we all loved it. And then it became famous, you know? And I'm like, Boo Boo Kitty's famous. So, so that's what happens when you can let things be a little loose. Yeah, I think Grace uh, Geely, who plays that role of Anika, gets called Boo Boo Kitty all the time. <laughs> <laughs> now, wherever she goes. Um, before I got into scripted, I did... Um, what they call non-scripted television for seven years, directing in reality and documentary. And so being on this set was so fun for me. It was just this, it was a, everything got, everything crystallized because, you know, we, of course, if you, if you watch Empire, the details that are in those scenes from the art that's on the wall to the wardrobe, everything, it's very, very, it, it is composed, trust me. So there, there is that room to play. And when you have two actors like Terrence and Taraji who have that much history and have that, that much chemistry, they know that when they come onto the set, it's a safe place. And one of the joys for me was to just make it as safe as possible and let them go, you know, let, let, let's play, let's play, let's surprise each other in, in a scene, let's, let's try this, let's try that. And it, it, it was just 
I think you can feel it. I think when you watch the show, you can feel there's, it's, it's somewhere in between what we know is scripted land and what we know is reality, uh, reality television, honestly, because there's things that you just feel it's off the cuff. And you can see it in, in the eyes as well, that when, when an actor doesn't know that line's coming at him yeah. and that reaction, it's just the best. <laughs> Um, Danny, you mentioned a moment ago, even though you didn't have to, that you spent quite a number of years acting as well. Um, you'll be on a panel later today to talk about the that. Gilmore Girls panel. Yes. Ah. <laughs> what? What a is a Gilmore Girls? I have never heard of Gilmore Girls. What is this? Well, it's a mother and a daughter, and the mother's more like the daughter, and the daughter's more like the mother. And can I give a shout-out to Dan Palladino of Gilmore Girls fame? Hey, Dan. Uh, I bring it up because I'm curious to know how you feel your writing is different given your acting background. Do you feel like you write better for actors having walked in their shoes previously? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I remember when um, the first movie I wrote was was Recount uh, that I sold and got made. It It was about the Florida Recount. And... For some reason, the talking point to attack the movie was that it was written by the guy from Buffy and Gilmore Girls. So obviously, it's going to suck, you know? And Which is weird, because that's why I watched it. Really? <laughs> I love that. So that was like this big talking point, and I thought, God, it's so funny. Everyone's like trying to hit this movie because it was written by an actor, and it's literally my, my biggest weapon as a writer yeah. is my acting background. I mean, hands down is that when I'm writing the scenes, I'm just playing them out in my head like a crazy person. But, I mean, I'm playing them out in my head as an actor. So it's... it's And I think... And that's how I write the different voices of the different characters. I just do it as if I'm performing them. Um, And so it's sort of everything uh, for me as a writer. Absolutely. Um, There is a lot of talk about... Empire in terms of diversity on screen when the show came out and throughout its entire first run. But one of the things I think the show doesn't get enough credit for is the diversity behind the scenes of the show. I mean, with the exception of a single episode, which you wrote and directed. Thank you. Every Episode 108. I think most people's favorite here, right? Clearly. (laughs) But every single episode of Empire was either written or directed by a person of color, and in some cases, both. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. When we have a culture right now where the ACLU is looking into hiring practices because they don't feel it's... I love it, they're doing that. Yeah. I, mean, I love, because I'm, I'm very... Um, uh, there are too few women directors in television. And I've worked with a lot of women directors in television, and they've always been excellent. And it's very, um, it's, it's one of those things, and, and women directors in film. Now, that's actually the one area, I mean, producers and executives, I work with so many women that I don't, I, I mean, I don't know what the statistics are, but literally, it's, I, I think I work with more f- female producers and executives than men, but when it comes to directors, it's this unbelievably low statistic, and it was one of the first things I said to Eileen Chaikin, our showrunner, is I said, we need to hire women directors. I really want to hire female directors. Um, I'm sorry, I got off track. No, diversity. No. Now, is it diversity when it's almost entirely African-American? I mean, or is that just I mean, right? representation? <laughs> but it's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome how, it, how many... Uh, but, you know, our writing staff, our writing staff really is incredibly diverse. Mm-hmm. Where we've got, you know, we've got white writers, Hispanic writers... African American writers, and it's just like bougie writers. Bougie writers. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it's. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? It's. It is mind blowing. It's mind blowing. I think the the first. The, you have to understand. For for me, I, I mean, I up until Empire, I was usually the only black writer in the room, for the most part. So for years, 
I was carrying that torch. <laughs> so to start on the show like Empire and have so many black voices in the room, I think there was one point that we joked that we over-diversified. <laughs> it was a joke. But it was just, it, it was amazing. And it really sunk into me because I, I started to realize that we were able to, to get into the nuance of our culture. We were no longer just talking about the surface of our culture that I think many people know and it's familiar because that's kind of what you always hear about. We were able to get down, really down into it because we all were so familiar with it. And it felt like, I swear, going to work felt like going to family reunion, sitting around the table at the family reunion. That's what it felt like. So that family sense, I think, is really great. It's important for your, I think it's important for your writer's room to reflect the DNA of the show. And the writer's room of Empire to be a family atmosphere, I think it's very important that we carry that dynamic into the work that we're doing on the show. And uh, no, when it, when it really, really, really hit me was in season one, many, many members of the cast came through to meet with us. They sat down, they talked with us, and we got to hear their voices and get to know them a little better. And when Caitlin Doubleday came in, you know, she plays Rhonda. She was the blonde uh, she sat down. I really, it hit me. I was like, this is our only white person on the show? <laughs> she, and she's not playing the ingenue or the lead detective? I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> now she's the evil white wife. <laughs> there, was one, uh, there was one blogger that would call her EWW. <laughs> evil white wife. <laughs> Which I love. Yeah, but it's it's amazing, and then to for me to be able to get to know so many um, African American or Black directors and and female directors. Although we we had quite a number of female directors on Nashville, Good. that was something that we that was happening there quite a bit. But um, it, it's just incredible because, like I said, it's it's something about people that know their culture so well being able to tell that story mm -hmm. that allows you to get a, a, just a different shade of the story. And I think it's what makes this show feel fresh. Absolutely. Uh, when the show came out and did phenomenally well, you pretty much could have had your choice of guest star in season two. I mean, everybody talks about the fact that Oprah says she wants to be on the show. Denzel Washington says he wants to be on the show. For you, I mean, you've made some choices. I know, like, you have Alicia Keys coming on next year, and you have sporadic actors. Is it important for you to maintain the authenticity of the world to not have the crazy guest star of the week that Fox can promote with the world's splashiest commercial to drive that audience because technically you guys don't have to. I totally agree. Yeah. And it's for me, it's personally frustrating. Um, I, I think that um, I just don't think we need to stunt cast so much. And there's pressure to. Um, and uh, I just don't, I don't think we need to do it. And as an actor myself, I want to hire people that are talented, that that were like me, that were like needed the job and it's a great opportunity as opposed to someone who is so famous, this is going to be some fun little thing they're going to do, you know, for like pocket change. Yeah. So I just, um, uh, it's, it's something that gets talked about in the writer's room and I'm sort of a vocal proponent of not doing all the stunt casting. And then there are other people that really like doing the stunt casting. So it's a, it's, I wouldn't say it's a source of tension, but it's a source of disagreement. Because yeah. it becomes like law and order where you're like, oh, they did it, they're famous. You know, and you're just, you're like, you know it pulls you out of the reality of now, the moment. Now at times, I agree, at times though, it's great. Uh, because it's a show about superstar musicians. So to hire superstar musicians in these parts um, completely works. Like hiring Courtney Love was a terrific piece of casting. And it wasn't a piece of casting that I wasn't sure of because of what I just described. I wanted to hire someone less famous, and Lee Daniels was adamant about Courtney Love. And then when I watched the, when I watched the first cut, I, said, I called him. I said, you were right. Like, this is great casting. Um, so sometimes it completely works for our storytelling. It just depends. Yeah, I think it's a, for me, it's a balance issue. I mean, on the one hand side, I think it's really fun to show up 
to a show each week and get a little surprise package, you know, which I think is great. But on the other hand side, we have a real estate issue. You know, we only have 42 pages or, you know, 42 minutes Three of musical show. numbers. Three musical numbers, a Times great four. cast that we want to service. And you don't want to do a disservice to that guest star. I mean, you want to be able to give them a nice meaty role like Elle Dallas or what Naomi Campbell got to play. You want to give them something fun that they'll enjoy. So it's really hard to balance all those different areas. Um, And just the more that they, they or whoever is throwing at us, the more people are actually are coming at us. It just... It, it's hard sometimes to stay focused on, on how much real estate you can actually devote to that person because you want to do them justice. Well, um, I, I'll just tell you because it's been reported. The original offer for Lucius was to Wesley Snipes, and we were negotiating with Wesley Snipes. And, um, but I always wanted Terrence. And it did, uh, it, it ended up not happening with him. And I was like, well, let's go to Terrence, you know? And, and, uh, and Lee loves Terrence. We did the butler with Terrence. So, but the idea of Wesley Snipes was a terrific idea, too. It was a, it's a great piece of casting. Um, so, and then with Taraji, it was, she was just at the top of the list. And we did, uh, we did a chemistry read with Terrence and Taraji. So there were no other actors that were ever brought in except for Terrence and Taraji. And I remember during the chemistry read, um, about 30 seconds into Taraji being cookie, Lee whispered to me, he went, she's cookie, right? And I, I whispered back, yeah, she's cookie. And then he went, all right, bitch, you got the part. (laughs) Literally, like, 45 seconds into her reading. I mean, that's how obvious it was. (laughs) And and then with the sons, we always thought it would be... And we always thought it would be unknowns. Um, I think there was... was, the The part I was always most worried about casting was Jamal. Because you needed a performer that you believed would be a massive star. And you also needed an actor who the second he came on screen, you just liked. And then you just thought he was special. So, so you needed those two things. You needed a real actor who could perform at that level. And it was like finding a needle in a haystack. And then we, we, found, we found the needle, which was, which was Jesse. I disagree with Terrence. I don't think we need to use that word on the show. And... Um, it's also, if we were on cable, yes. I mean, y- y- right? It would feel weird. But, but we're not on cable. We're a network show. It's not a, a, it's not a documentary on hip-hop. It's a soap opera set in the hip-hop world. So there's a heightened quality to this world... And so that's why you're able to watch the show and have there be no profanity and not think about it. I mean, do you think about it? It's like, it's, it's no, it's, you know. And we were really worried. I wasn't so worried about it. Lee was really worried about it. And he kept writing all this profanity in the, this pilot script. And I would just keep taking it out. And I, one, one point I said, you have to stop doing that because you're just going to miss it. It's not, you're, not, this, you're not helping yourself by putting it in there because it's never going to make it into the show. And, um, and I just don't think... Um, it's so funny, though, because you have like a, something like that where Terrence says something like that. Taraji responds. I, in the same way I basically just responded. Lee responds. I respond. You have all these quotes, right? And guess how many discussions about it happened between us personally? Zero. Like, it didn't even, like, like, it doesn't even come up, and it's like this news story, and everyone's commenting on it, and it's like, it literally never came up, you know, and it's just something Terrence said. I always thought one of the most exciting things we'd be able to do when we finished this series of put together a glossary of new words that we came up with. <laughs> I'm really serious. Why couldn't we have our own vocabulary that comes out of this particular show? And, um, and that's, so I like to find new words. And that's also helpful with the improvisation of just letting the actors, you know who's amazing at that too is, is Yaz, who plays Hakeem. He's a real rapper from Philly. 
and he just comes up with little nuances all the time that are truthful to his existence. And they're, they're awesome. They just, they just sound great, you know? Conceptually, how it came about was that Andre was going to be the Iago of season one, right? You know, there, we had these two battles against these brothers, and that there's a third brother that everyone ignores, and he's everyone's enemy trying to, to get it, right? And I just thought, okay, so how do I not make him a two-dimensional villain, and I thought, oh, well, what if he's struggling with, with bipolar disorder? That could kind of humanize him, and it's interesting, and it's powerful, and you could explore that um, in an interesting way. You know, it's, it's always, you always just sort of think, well, how can we make this more interesting? Um, and then from there, it became, well, then it's got to be real. <laughs> I think you just have to do it right. Because if you're not going to do it right, then why are you doing it at all? Um, so we just tried to do our best to do it right. We had one of our writers on staff last season. His brother suffered with, was bipolar. So that was a great source of information, uh, just anecdotes that he was giving. And um, anything else and, on and that? And we had many long discussions about that particular bipolar in, in, in the black community. And how it's in, and how it's approached, and we had, I mean, long discussions about it, and how we would try to portray it on the show, and it was, it was important. It was, and we also knew that it was going to be a big story point. Yeah. We were building towards something really big, actually, a scary story point that he would have him, you know, institutionalized, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah a lot of research went into it. We wanted to do it. We wanted to to honor it, you know the story, but also honor what it meant in in our community and also just sort of dissect it um, and we're still it's going to be part of his character from forever so um now it's interesting because we've already done we already went so big with it we got to figure out all right, where do we go now so the Lucius disease misdiagnosis was part of the original pitch to the show. And I told that, I told Lee that in that first meeting with him. I mean, not with, um, with uh, when it was still a movie. I said in the end he'll be misdiagnosed. And it was uh, based on my grandfather who was misdiagnosed with, uh, with and it wasn't ALS, but it was, a, it was a similar type disease that attacked your immune system. Um, the, the Jamal getting the empire, yeah, that was, we always thought Jamal was going to get the empire from the get, it just made the most sense for that story. Um, but just because you get the empire doesn't mean you get to keep the empire. Oh, oh snap, oh, oh mic drop, I don't want to mic. <laughs> I don't want to hurt the mic, you know. It's a good mic, but <laughs> so those things were those things were worked out uh, very early on. Don't go anywhere. Coverage from the ATX Television Festival in Austin, Texas, continues next only on Entertainment Weekly Radio. exclusive backstage pass to the ATX Television Festival. From exclusive interviews with the cast and creators of some of your favorite TV shows. To panels and reunions like this one. Direct from Austin, Texas. So, sort of in closing, Wendy, I'm going to turn to you first. You have spent uh, the first season establishing this world. When you look at everything available to you going into season two. What excites you about the potential of the stories you can tell moving forward? Um, new relationship dynamics. Um, relationships that we really weren't able to dive into in the first 12 that now we're going to be able to get into. Mm -hmm. They already exist. So that's what's nice. It's not like we're going to be recreating the wheel. You, I mean, you, you, you'll know these relationships exist. We just didn't have a lot of time to get into them. So that is what really excites me. Like who? <laughs> I, I'll be honest. I, keep, I sound like a broken record. I want to see more Cookie and Andre. I want to know more about that. So that, for, for sure, is something I want to dive into. Episode 204. 
Hey. Well, I'm writing that right now. <laughs> It'll be our second favorite, new favorite episode. <laughs> um, I mean, sort of same question to you, Danny. You know, you've dedicated more than a year of your life now to creating and building your own empire, as it were. Uh, what excites you about the team you've assembled and the stories you'll tell now in season two and beyond? Oh, I mean, I'm uh, so stressful. <laughs> like 18 more episodes. It's just like, it's a Be lot. Um, because it's not a cookie cutter type show. No pun intended. I didn't even know I did that. That's crazy. Um, it's just like it's just not. It's just it's 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 not it's not the crime of the week. Right. Um, it's not the medical you know disease of the week. Um, but the I mean I love our company. I love Eileen Chaikin, our showrunner. I just like I love her. I love our staff, and I'm very attached to our actors. Um, I'm very fond of them. Um, and I'm very protective of uh, Boo Boo Kitty <laughs> and Rhonda and like all the ones that aren't like the superstar, you know, they're, they're, but like, because they're doing such wonderful work yeah. too and everyone's just doing such wonderful work. Um, so what was the question? What excites you about where you can go now? I'm very, um, I'm very attached to the mythology of the Lion family. And I love, I just love the, the story. I'm just attached to the Lion family. So um, there's going to be hopefully a storyline in season two that's a flashback story that I'm very excited about. That it's going to be sort of an origin story for, for one of the characters. And so the idea of this kind of just sort of I mean I love the flashbacks in season one I think they're so powerful yeah. when you go back and you see where they were and where Lucius was and where Cookie was and you know the back and forth and contradicting it how it was this family and it was torn apart um, I find it very powerful and poignant so for me it's just sort of the continuation of the of the Lion family but also the new dynamic this season which was Season one was who will inherit the throne. And season two is warring kingdoms. So to see the kingdoms go to war over the throne. And, you know, here, this is the first time I'm saying this ever, which is going to sound like, like it's not that big a deal, what I'm about to say. So don't expect any words of wisdom. <laughs> but a thing we talk about in the writer's room all the time is Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. Which goes back to the King Lear of it all. So the idea of telling this, this sort of modern-day hip-hop soap opera, but also trying to frame it in an epic, mythological, you know, um, kingdom-type framework is, uh, to me, the, the most exciting part of the show, is when they're talking about kings and queens and princes and prince and, and that sort of... Um, that sort of uh, language. So the, the continuation of that, of those battles at that level is what, what I personally dig uh, the most. I can't wait for those flashbacks, by the way. I mean, just to watch Cookie's hairstyles for the past 40 years <laughs> is just pleasure enough for me. Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. I love that. So now we know there'll be a lot of flashbacks in season two. Cookie will get dragons. It'll be fantastic. Right? <laughs> um, first of all, thank you so much. Those were such great questions. I have to say the ATX audience asked you the best questions awesome. out of everything. Now leaving Nerdist.com.